0: Since April, our church has been reading through the part of the Bible called Acts. It's the account of the origins of Christianity, of the church. And it's told as a narrative, as a journey. The journey of Christianity as it spreads from Israel, its point of origin... For Jesus lived and performed his miracles and delivered his teachings and was crucified and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit. It's told as a journey story like Odysseus, like the Lord of the Rings, right? This is quite a common technique that goes back for millennia when you're trying to account for origins to map it on a journey. So here we find Luke, standing in this great tradition of literature, mapping the origins of Christianity as a journey, a journey from Israel out, out into the big, wide world. Now, the book of Acts is divided in two basic parts, chapters 1 to 12. This is part 1. It centers in Israel and around Jerusalem It centers where Christianity got started. It centers not only in this place, it also centers around a person. It centers around Peter, the leader of the followers of Jesus. Then the second half of the book picks up in chapter 13, right as Christianity is crossing the geographic boundaries of Israel, moves up to Antioch, it's moving out into the wider world. And this time, for this part of the story, it centers not around Jerusalem as much as it centers around Paul, who's taking Christianity. He's the leader of the second half of the book. It centers as he's taking Christianity out into the wider Roman world. Now, since August, we've been following this portion of the book. We've been following Paul's journey. And now we come to chapter 19. Thanks, Emily, for reading it wherever you are. And um, none of us notice you stumbling on that hard name. <laughs> Not that Mike Medley would have. Um, no, I'm messing with you. We find Paul in Acts chapter 19 in one of the major centers of the Mediterranean world, the city of Ephesus. And Luke, the author of Acts, he stretches out this moment. As pacing goes, it's one of the longest scenes in the entire book. I mean, look at it this way. It starts in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, and it goes all the way through to the end of chapter 19. And that's only half of Paul in Ephesus. We'll see next week the the second half, Acts chapter 20. My point is that Luke slows the narrative down for this scene. And when a writer or a movie director slows the pacing, you are supposed to sit up. You're supposed to say, what's going on here? It's like in Genesis chapter 1, you're moving bam, 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 bam really fast through all the days of creation, and then it gets to the sixth day of creation, and all of a sudden the whole narrative slows down. You have more than twice as many words for the sixth day as you do of any other day, and it's, it's showing that the high point of creation is the creation of humans, and it's making a point. Pacing in narrative is a technique for delivering meaning. Now, why does the narrative slow down so much for the Ephesian episode? Well, this is the climax of Paul's public ministry. This is actually his last major stop before he's arrested and in chains for the rest of his life. This is where his public ministry, not all of his ministry, but the public side of his ministry, this is where it all culminates. This is Paul at the height of his powers. He's had lots of experiences with being arrested, with being in conflict, with sharing the story of Christianity um, with people who accept it and people who don't accept it. He's had lots of debates. He's had lots of Lots of experiences, and he's at his most powerful in his vocation. He's at his prime in this moment. Now, if you read over this section in kind of a big swoop, and if you were to read it over and over and over, and if you were to read it over enough times that you stopped getting distracted by the trees, and you started to feel in your bones the shape of the forest, you would notice a theme that stretches through the whole episode, through all of these little bitty actions. And the theme is power. Power is what comes up throughout the Ephesian experience. Let me show you some of what I mean. Look at, if you have your Bible, turn to to Acts chapter 18. If you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. If you don't own a Bible, I encourage you, go on Amazon. You can buy one for like a dollar, all right? The ESV, English Standard Version, is a great translation. Lots of good translations, but it can be disorienting if you're not comfortable with Bibles. I encourage you to find one and to bring it to church when you come. That's a great thing to do. Find Acts chapter 18. Look, look what happens in verse 24. We've got this cat named Apollos. That's what my grandfather would call him, a cat. I don't know why he called everybody cats, but there you have it. In Ephesians chap, I'm in John, no wonder. In Acts chapter... In Acts chapter 18, verse 24, there's this Jew named Apollos. And look what it says in verse 24. He's eloquent. He's competent. Look what it says in verse 26. He speaks boldly. He speaks accurately. But then, when he discovers the full breadth of Christianity, it says in verse 28, he begins to speak how? Powerfully. Now, look at chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. This very strange story. Here are some other followers of God who know part of the story, but not all of the story. And what happens when they're taught all of the story and they're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Well, all of a sudden, they develop strange powers. And then we could. there's this fresh outpouring of the power of God on these followers. And it, it's not just about the power of God. It's also about the power of Ephesus. Like I said earlier, Ephesus is one of the great centers of the Mediterranean world. It was a city at the hub of the key international trade routes. So it's full of culture and money and temples and politics and soldiers and merchants and slaves. And most of all, Ephesus is filled with power. Everything we know about Ephesus through archaeology and history points to the fact that it was a place of social and civic power. Religious power. Spiritual power. Power was the idol of Ephesus. It was a center. And so then you get to verse 11. And you see this really strange story of of God's power is so thick through Paul that it reminds us of when people would touch just the kind of Edges of Jesus' robe and the power of God would heal them. Well, suddenly this kind of thin space, this kind of power of God is all over Paul. Paul is at the height of his power. And he's at the height of his power in a city that is a power center. Now Luke is a brilliant author. He's setting up a clash by foregrounding power through these idiosyncratic stories, these odd episodes, these weird events, he's pushing to the front power. And sure enough, suddenly there's a showdown. We see that the power of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is stronger than even the power of Ephesus. That's what the scene, that's what the, the, the whole chapter, all of chapter 19, that's what it's about. It starts out by presenting some stories to foreground this, and then all of a sudden, we read about some folks in this city of power in verses 13 through 20. We read about some guys. Who live in a city whose idol is power? They see this cat named Paul. He's got power. Wow, look what he can do. We want that. That's the currency of our city. So then they go and they ply their trade trying to use this new power as a talisman. And in one of the funniest moments in the Bible, at least for those of us reading it, I doubt it was funny for the sons of Seva. They try to do it, and this demon-possessed person beats them all up, rips their clothes off of them. Like, if, if I watched six of my brothers get their clothes ripped off, I think I would excuse myself into the street, right? But no, they all seven hang around to get naked, and then they go running through the city, and everybody hears about this. Now, then the next scene. The next scene is the climax of all of these little episodes of power. After all. How much power does it take. To get you. To get rid of everything that's valuable. In your life. See that's the next scene. The next scene is the climactic move of power. It is the power of God is even stronger. Than the economics of the city. These people, they burn the costly magic books. God is more powerful than economic systems. Sure enough, look in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit. To pass through Macedonia and Caia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also go to Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed in Asia for a while. And here we see a giant riot takes place. Now, this theater that everybody gathered in, it seats 25,000. That's the size of JMU Stadium. This was not a small riot. Can you imagine two hours of 25,000 people yelling and screaming in chaos? All of it is in response to the scenes that have just occurred. It's in response to these powerful demonstrations that have just occurred. Now, to understand this riot that comes up for what it is, let me go back because I skipped over something. Look in verse 9. Acts chapter 19, verse 9. Paul is talking to Jewish people in a synagogue about Christianity. And it says, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. Now go to verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance Concerning the way. Twice in this chapter, Christianity is not called Christianity. It's called the way. What's going on here? What's happening is that Luke, the author, is trying trying to foreground for us that Christianity isn't just a system of beliefs. It's a total and comprehensive way of living. It encompasses all of life. It's not just beliefs, it's practices. It's your public life and your private life. It's not just your morality, it's your business relationships. It's the way you spend your time and the way you spend your money and what you do with your body and what you do with your work. Christianity is a comprehensive pattern of living. And it's not just a total way of life, it is an alternative Way of life. It is comprehensive and it is alternative. The Christian way of living runs counter to the way the Ephesians basically live. And when Christianity takes hold in a region because it is comprehensive and because it is alternative, It destabilizes culture. Demetrius was right in the riot when he said, this is going to wreck everything. He was right. Christianity, because it is comprehensive and because it is totally alternative, it can be profoundly destabilizing to a culture. And that leads to conflict. That's the inevitable result. So take the two stories in Acts chapter 19 verses 11 through 20. Here we see that Christianity is fundamentally incompatible with magic. You see at first when the sons of Siva try to, try to try to appropriate Christianity into a magic way of doing business. And we see it second when the new followers of Jesus recognize the fundamental incompatibility. So they take and they publicly burn their magic books. It's interesting that it comments about how much they were worth and it is a lot of money. Why didn't they sell these books and use the value of these books to help the poor? Remember, poverty was a serious issue. There was no government safety net. We know back from chapter 6 that that's a common move of new Christians. They sell their possessions and give the proceeds to the leaders of the church so that they can help the poor because the poor are getting the short end of the stick left, right, and center. Well, now we've got an enormous thing of value, but instead of giving it to a way of helping the poor, they burn it and destroy it and erase it. Why? What's the point? The point is that selling it to others, no, Christianity in no way can support magic. It is fundamentally, totally incompatible. And so they burn them publicly. This is John, your neighbor. This is Sarah, your friend. This is a community that knows each other and there is a public burning of something that represents a fundamental way of living. That's what magic was everywhere in Ephesus. We know this from a large number of surviving papyri documents from that time where in this region daily life was saturated with magic. Romance, Business, chariot races, illnesses, house varmin, virtually every aspect of human life was dealt with by various magical amulets and voodoo dolls and tablets and an assortment of other commonly available trinkets. This is the core of living. This is as Ephesian as apple pie is American. So the burning of these magic books is not only a way of preventing them from being used. It is a visible, dramatic, irreversible no to that way of life. That's one reaction to the total alternative way of life that Christianity embodies. Some people accept it. But in the second half of chapter 19, Demetrius gets the businessmen of the city together. And there's another way of reacting to the total way of alternative living. Demetrius is right. He has clearly seen the nub of the issue. He's not the head of the guild for no reason. This is a smart businessman. He knows what's at stake. He sees that the growth of Christianity wrecks the economy. That economics are not morally neutral. And he sees this. And he, see, and he sees that economics are so wedded to culture that when you mess with an economic system, You mess with an entire culture. So look at it this way. The burning of the magical books in verse 19 causes an uproar. Demetrius and the craftsmen. These are not two unconnected, random episodes. They're two different responses to the power of Christianity. To the powerful alternative way of living that Paul is proclaiming when he's teaching, like it says back in chapter 19, verse 8, the kingdom of God. The total way of living of Christianity. These two stories, the burning of the books and the riot in the stadium, these are two sides of the same stark either-or reality. The practice of magic, the economic basis of the Ephesian culture, or the Christian way of living. An economy that is flawed in its fundamentals is incompatible, With the Christian way of living. It is either magic or Christianity. It is either Artemis or Christ. It is either the economic system or the Christian way. The the magicians and the businessmen both see it clearly. The magicians convert the businessmen in the grip of a far greater power than magic, a power we don't like to name as a power. The businessmen. Reject it. Christianity is a total comprehensive way of life that is incompatible with every other way of living. And it's this reality that plays out over and over in the book of Acts. We saw it with the mobs in Lystra. We saw it with the politicians in Philippi and the philosophers in Athens. And now we see it with the magicians and the businessmen in Ephesus over and over in this account of the origins of Christianity. We see the rushing together of the economic, the religious, and cultural ways of life and Christianity. This is a major theme of the book. You see, the Bible is made out of different types of literature. Parts of the Bible are command. The way you're supposed to handle commands is obey, right? Parents with your children, you give your child a command, their appropriate posture is not some deep interpretive move. It's just to take the trash out, right? But sometimes we tell our kids stories. How are we supposed to handle narrative stretches of the Bible? What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to get a good feel for the vision they cast and then stand in that vision and look at our world through that vision. And this is the vision that Acts is casting over and over and over. It is a vision of Christianity as a total alternative way of living. And our job in a city that doesn't have a temple to Artemis is to look out at life in our city and say, what does this vision reveal about life today? What does this view of Christianity as a total alternative way of living that even has the guts to make you choose either Christianity or what your friends and neighbors and family and relatives do at the basic center of their lives? This is the vision it's casting. Now, for a long time here in the West, we've gotten off easy. I mean, here in the West, Christianity has been at the center of society and culture. I mean, just just think about this one fact. Even Donald Trump has to claim Christianity to run for the presidency. And we see time and time and time again that his life is manifesting the fruit of, not of light, but of darkness. You can't run for president successfully in America without siding up with Christianity. That's the way it's been. That's what it takes. That's the way it's been for a very long time in America. Now, I'm using that as an illustration to say it's the same. it's been the same way in a lot of places in America, but that is quickly changing, isn't it? Aren't we beginning to experience the birth pains of a profoundly anti-Christian society? So that now we're beginning to experience the first manifestations of what it's like for many Christians in many parts of the world. Where to name Christ is to lose your job and your friends and your family And experience all manner of persecution. Now the first wave of persecution we're experiencing. Is that we're being misunderstood. And some of us are failing miserably. At that persecution. In America right now. If you name the exclusivity of Christ. Or of the Christian sexual ethic. You're misunderstood as being unkind. And intolerant. And hateful. And we... Middle-class Americans have been decimated by that woeful persecution. But it's just the first wave. If we don't learn to suck it up and take it on the chin, if we don't learn that being misunderstood as intolerant is a form of persecution that we must stand up to, If we keep trying to play this game where we're not going to say what the truth is until people are convinced we love them, the plausibility structure of our society cannot hear love in our stance. We have to be willing to live into this moment where our society is going, and it is far closer to what Paul is going through in Ephesus than it is to what our grandfathers went through in America. And I think that's what's going on. I think what's going on with the church in America is we've just been caught off guard, and we're going to get far better at this. 60 years from now, we're going to be a lot better at this. We're going to have accumulated a lot of wisdom through our mess-ups and our successes, but we've got to be faithful now. And we're facing situations that my grandfather never faced. Situations that the Bible doesn't tell us anything about how to handle. But it does give us a vision of life that our job is to stand in front of and look at our situation and then do the hard work of collective, communal, Christian discernment about how to handle it. Those of us who are Christians, we really really need to stop and look closely at our society. Not at the low-hanging, easy stuff. But at the depth stuff. We need to look as closely as Demetrius looked. We need to start making the connections about how Christianity will wreck the system's that make our city stable. See, the interesting thing that happens in the book of Acts is over and over and over, businessmen, various people rise up and say, hey, this is destabilizing our our culture, our city. This is messing things up. And then simultaneously, you have somebody like the, the clerk of the city who stands up and say, but nothing illegal has been done. And you have these two ideas and tension in the book of Acts. Christianity is good for Rome. It is not leading a sedition. It is not leading revolution. Christianity is bad for Rome. Christianity is not breaking the law. Christianity is fundamentally undercutting the law. And this tension occurs in your life. You see, that's what happens when the world is upside down and you come along and try to turn it right side up. So on the one hand, we're not bad for the city. We are good for the city. The Christian sexual ethic leads to life. The Christian view, view on abortion saves lives, both the lives of the aborted and the mothers who've declared war on their own wounds. It saves lives by offering grace and forgiveness for those who got trapped in those decisions. Christianity saves lives by undercutting a free market economy that leaves itself vulnerable to an increasingly widening gap between the rich and the poor. I'm not against free market economics. I think free market economics are really good. I just don't think they're value neutral. And I think that we need economists and businessmen and academics and politicians to work really hard, really, really hard, on how to help ensure all of our citizens have the opportunity to live the best life possible. And we as Christians have to begin to look as deeply as Demetrius looked and not be as politically suave as the clerk was. He was wrong. He was successful. He was politically adept. He got the crowd to disperse. But he smoothed over the real conflict. We need Christians with the guts of Demetrius. We need... We have got to rediscover the ability to take our Bibles in one hand and our courage in the other hand and start saying what has to be said and throw caution to the wind. Now, what is this? Well, Aaron Cook is doing a documentary, What are the Idols of Harrisonburg? It's an amazing question. Because Harrisonburg is a wonderful place. It's not as easy to see our idols as it is a place like New York. Even a place like Charlottesville. Harrisonburg has been deeply shaped by the gospel. The Mennonites, the Methodists, and the Brethren did an amazing job in Harrisonburg. Deeply shaping us into a city that is friendly and that does care. But make no mistake about it. There are idols here. And when we put our hands on them and name them, they will respond in the ways idols always respond, with violence. But we have, and this is the point of the chapter, a greater power. That's the point of the chapter. The power of the living God is even bigger than magic even bigger than the flourishing economic system of Ephesus. The only way we can walk forward into the decades ahead is if we know that and we believe that and we believe that no matter what, Jesus Christ is the greatest. His power is more powerful. And so with that deep conviction in hand, Let us be the kind of people who take our Bibles in one hand and our courage in the other hand and live in the way God calls us to live and say what needs to be said because it's life and everything else is a lie. Let's pray.